Welcome to the Life After ECT podcast. Today's guest audio is from Marissa, a student in San Diego State University's Rehabilitation Counseling Master's program. She interviews Sarah Price Hancock, an electroshock survivor about her life after electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah, that would be awesome if you could. Okay, Thank awesome. you so much. It is now recording. Do I have okay. your permission? <laughs> yes, you do. My consent. <laughs> okay, so just to start off, um, if you're comfortable, if you could briefly explain um, how you acquired your brain injury and how long ago. Yes. Okay, so um, I have a repetitive electrical injury. Um, it was 450 volts, 900 milliamps, 116 times. Um, because it was repetitive, it happened over a, a lengthy period of time. I actually, my first treatment was in December of 2002, uh, no, yeah, 2002. And then I finished the first half in uh, February or maybe January of 2004. Right. And then three years later, um, in 2007, uh, I think it was the summer or fall of 2007, I started again. Um, and I had it until 2009. I quit against medical advice in June or May or June. Um, and the treatment course was three times a week, three times a week, twice a week, twice a week, once a week, repeat over and over and over again. Right. So, um, it there's two parts of electrical injury evidently there's the initial repercussions which initially caused memory loss and as my brain began to heal um, the memory loss actually became more dense and more pervasive um so like immediately after during the very first part of ECT um, I still talk about memories that I had um, but then as the as the treatments progressed it has what's called a cumulative effect because it's a repetitive head injury and so my memory slowly deteriorated until when I finished when I quit ECT against medical advice in 2009 I actually quit in part because I could no longer remember my parents and family members faces when I was talking to them on the phone even when they had just dropped me off somewhere or something and I, I couldn't remember their personalities i just had in their phone in my phone that that was their number right so. you just noticed 
those little changes in your memory, I'm sure. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't just memory. I mean, memory obviously is the large component because when you erase 36 years of your life, that's erasing your entire identity because it's not just like you forgot it and then something will trigger a memory. It it really is gone. Um, So it's kind of strange to like read my journals which I'm very grateful I wrote a lot um but I can tell it's in the handwriting that's probably mine (laughs) at least the voice that's mine um (laughs) but it doesn't trigger memories um same with looking at pictures of things I have to kind of play where's Waldo to find myself right and it's difficult because when you think about all of your interpersonal relationships, they're established on um, shared memories. And then if you no longer have those memories, there's an imbalance in the relationship. You feel very isolated and disconnected from those around you, even if they know you. Yeah. But Worse than the memory, I think, was the functional impairments. Um, I began reading when I was three years old. Um, I was reading at a third or fourth grade level by the time I was in kindergarten. Wow. (laughs) Um, So I I was an editor um, for faculty (laughs) papers when... uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's like, Mom, I'm here. I know, Margo, come here. I was editor of faculty papers when I was at Sandy, or excuse me, at BYU <laughs> for the community. I'm, I'm just gonna program. put him on that really quick. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I I was editing faculty papers um for the humanities department before they submitted them for publication. After ECT, I had no memory of my education. I had no memory of my coursework, the, my experiences in college, um, and none of my work experience. Um, and so I realized that the only way I was going to be able to move forward in life would be to go back to school. Because at that point, my only skills were basically answering the phone because I can talk. so um i had always wanted to work with disability people with disability and my journals so that i was i mean i knew i had been an interpreter for the deaf because i still had friends that would tell me that i had interpreted for them um and they were very upset actually that I couldn't remember the language. They worked really hard with me to help me relearn it. And I I had friends that spoke Spanish that also helped me learn relearn Spanish. Um, and then um, I uh, chose to study for the GRE. Um, uh, I I. A year and a half after ECT, or I uh, I sat for the GRE, and 
I bombed it. I studied so hard for that thing. I can't even tell you. I had flashcards. I had written everything out. My problem was that I, my, my vision was impacted. So letters would move when it was yeah. like on a computer screen and they didn't make words. They just kind of moved. Um, and when I was reading, I had to read like highlighted verse, you know, where highlighted the words as I was reading. And I had to use like a jig that had a hole cut out in the paper so I could track the line that I was on. Right. That was problematic though, because I'd read a line and then I couldn't remember what I had just read to read the next line. That's why I had to use the jig to read and then, okay, this is the next line, but I couldn't remember what I just read to read them anyway. It was a choice. Yeah, it's, it's such an extensive task too. It's it really yeah. is. And I was laughing because even though I had studied for probably six to nine months for the vocabulary on that test, I I got I scored in the bottom third percentile. Oh no. Yeah. And so when I went to meet Karen for my interview, I was just like, yeah, you know. Let me explain myself. <laughs> well, no, I, I honestly just thought she would laugh at me because oh. here I was trying to come to school, uh, verified schizophrenic according to my health records. I had just broken out of the institution where everyone laughed at me for wanting to get my master's degree and told me I never could. And then I bombed the GRE after studying for six to nine months. And I was like, this is just a, a pipe dream, but I'm gonna keep trying. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and Karen looked at my transcripts and she's like, well, if your brain is as good as it used to be, you have exceptional <laughs> grades. I was like, yeah, I was the research assistant and I did faculty papers and I write. She's like, well, writing is probably the most important skill in grad school. Uh, right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I had to relearn how to type. Oh gosh. Um, yeah, that can be difficult. Yeah, but it was exciting, and it couldn't have—I wouldn't have survived in another program. But I had faculty that understood disability. They brainstormed strategies with me. They helped me learn assistive technology to learn what kinds of uh, accommodations I needed. I was able to get tested because um, my doctors were refusing assessment. And finally, I said, you know, I'm, I'm in school. And the only way to get accommodations, academic accommodations, is to prove that I actually need them. So I don't care when you say I don't have a brain injury. I need proof that I don't. Right. Because <laughs> I have some learning differences that can be supported with academic accommodation. Right. And so then because I was already enrolled, my psychiatrist was like, well, that makes sense. Okay, I will refer you. Oh, good. 
But I have friends uh, that I've met online who've never had the opportunity to have the testing done. Oh, yeah. Because their That's doctors a, just refuse it. Yeah, and it's we, we kind of talked about this in Chuck's class about how the problems kind of matriculate with each other. It's like the biggest problem is yeah. funding. Okay, well, when you have a hard time getting diagnoses, you can't get funding. You can't no. get you need proof. Yeah. And if yeah. they refuse to provide that to you, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? That's exactly the problem. Yeah, and especially in terms of electrical injury caused by a doctor. Yeah. There's no doctor in his right mind that's going to first or refer you for an assessment to rat out his colleague. Right. <laughs> Right, and that's kind of something I talked with um, Chuck's class about too. We were talking about um, how the ABI program provides the brain anatomy classes for their clients and even their families just to raise awareness about how the brain works and to get you to ask other questions. Yeah. And I was telling Chuck, I'm like, you know, sometimes I hear that even when they do learn the right question to ask, sometimes doctors don't like that. No, they don't. <laughs> they feel like they might know more than them or they're, yeah. you know, being smart. <laughs> but yeah. it's, just, it's just trying to raise your own awareness about your disability. And there's just not enough um, professional specific help out there, I don't think. No, there isn't, unfortunately. It's not very well understood. Brain injury is not very well understood. Oh, no. Electrical injury is not very well understood. That's a whole other ballpark, I feel like. Yeah, like on the call, the reason I would recommend doing the call is because the board meeting, guess who is on the board meeting? Who? Dr. Bennett Amalu. Oh, really? Yeah, like seriously. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it gives you the opportunity to really rub shoulders or earbuds <laughs> with, <laughs> with other professionals that are very highly regarded in the field. Right. Gives you the yeah. opportunity to be on the forefront of what's going on. Kind of make your voice heard, too. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> Because oh. there's so many people who need help with electrical oh. injury. Two million people a year internationally. That was estimated in 2004. And since then, they've reclassified the device and made it possible for kids 13 and older to get it. That's so young. Yeah, I know. I mean, I had this done to me when I was in my 20s and 30s. Can you imagine? I'm having the, the delayed electrical injury is very common, even when it's done correctly. And so I started having problems when I was 43. My friend, he actually only had 13 treatments and he feels it saved his life. But he's now 50. Six, I think he said, and now he's starting to experience episodic problems with swallowing, which is how mine started. He yeah, only like, had I 13. Was say, yours was delayed, right? Yeah. I, I remember you saying it had yeah. been 10 years. It was seven and a half, yeah. 
there's two parts of electrical injury. There's the initial injury, and then because it causes gliosis, myelin sheath damaging, microhemorrhaging, cerebral vascular weaknesses, then as you age, you get lesions, you get myelin sheath damage. Delayed responses. Yeah, it's, you don't age gracefully with these kind of injuries. Just like football players, they don't yeah. graze, gr age gracefully. Yeah, that it, the mind deteriorates. Sometimes it can, like you said, happen quickly, but yeah. sometimes it it just like you said the aging process and that's especially doesn't make it easier because that the older you get i mean the more likely you are to appear a disability it's true and it's difficult for people with brain injuries because especially for people with the electrical injury because it's because there is the second half of the injury is delayed it makes it difficult to track because people are never tracked for longer than they leave the hospital unless they're in a singular clinical trial that took place in 2007 they tracked people for six months yeah. that's it yeah it's so hard to keep track too because the amount of people that you have to see throughout you know oh yeah day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. So, with that being said, um, when you had your initial um, delayed responses, and I know you had mentioned when we originally met how that impacted your life greatly and said, expressing the encouragement that the doctors were saying that you shouldn't even be alive. Um, yeah. What were, after you were, I guess, rehabilitated? um what were your initial feelings did you feel like you were pretty knowledgeable on the resources or did you kind of have that sense of feeling lost well you know when i very first came out of graduate school i had the opportunity to do basically three years of intensive rehabilitation because oh, wow. it was forcing me to learn my resources, forcing me to get accommodations to, um, to um, you know, learn to reread, to learn to manage my time. Like I, I'm, I'm grade oriented, so I was like, it was really forcing me to become structured in a way that my brain just really, honestly, wasn't capable of doing for the first two two and a half years of school. And so once I finished, I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I finished and I didn't know about delayed electrical injury. So I just figured that I would go forward, go on, get my doctorate, you know, keep going. Right. And um, I was invited to teach with Marge and I taught for four years. And um, I started having the intermittent problems with swallowing and I started having the really strange, like we didn't know it at the time, but we're beginning to suspect that it's um, autonomic seizures um, and also uh, brainstem uh, type seizures and also um, 
they're seizures that are based on your electrolyte levels. So they're, they're called, um, I've developed evidently electrical injury is uh, connected to what's called channelopathies, which is how your body uh, manages electrolytes and um, ion channels. Um, I don't know, but we didn't understand. Oh, just a second. Oh, my husband wants me to get something off the porch. One moment, please. Okay. <laughs> I just, oh, let's see. Yeah. So, um, where was I? Um, you were kind of just explaining the initial feeling after um, you started teaching with March. Oh, yeah. Um, and I started having all of these really strange symptoms that we couldn't understand. And what I didn't know is that these channelopathies begin to progress and deteriorate. And as they do, you become more sensitive to your environment, allergies and such. And I was working in a building that was very moldy. And so um, every time I went in, my body would just go into acute problems. That's, and I'd have these really gnarly contractures and my voice would get even worse than this. And Marge was like, what's going on with you? And it was embarrassing, I didn't know. And none of my doctors knew. Right. Um, let me just let my sweetie know that I finished okay. that. Okay, and so um, then became it became a quest, you know, because it was episodic and it was very confusing because we didn't know what was going on. And finally, I connected with a trauma nurse who also had ECG, and she's in her late 50s now and she said Sarah now you've graduated to delayed electrical injury and I was like what the freak is that yeah so she encouraged me to begin researching the delayed electrical injury and so I started in researching that and it causes problems with motor neuron disease. It's associated with Parkinson's. It's associated with all these acute allergic problems and neuro weirdness. And I'm just like, oh, snap. <laughs> what did yeah. I get myself into? Yeah. I mean, hearing about TBIs is already so little. Yeah. <laughs> hearing about the electrical response is probably pretty unheard of to most people. Well, and I thought I was out of the woods. I mean, we're talking seven years after my brain injury. Right. I was on the way to getting better. My reading speed was improving. My reading comprehension was improving. My ability to create new memories had come back. Um, but, but it was weird because it's like I had improvement, 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 and now I'm experiencing all the symptoms of early onset dementia, and I'm only 45. I'm like, 
seriously so in may next month i'm gonna be assessed for dementia but it will be the ninth neurologist i've been to in the past two years i know you mentioned you've had a lot of trouble with that finding a good neurologist it's been so hard because it's outside of the scope of practice they say It's no one specializes in electrical injury unless they're in Chicago or Denver. Yeah, and so and we finally had to contact them. My, oh, wow. I like, I got into the delayed electrical injury research and started contacting all of those researchers. Right. And the majority of them wanted nothing to do with me because initially I was saying that I had a history of shock treatment. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to talk to a psych patient. So then I would just send a message that I I had a history of being adjunct faculty at San Diego State University and I was a rehabilitation counselor interested in providing better rehabilitative care for people with electrical injury. Then I started getting some response. I guess you gotta let them know you're there. People yeah. are just biased. Nobody, like, no one can do that. None of my peers can have those qualifications. And they're seriously suiciding because they have no hope. They don't know what's going on. Their doctors are just saying it in their head. They're just malingering. And right. So I've been gradually working with these researchers to identify the appropriate assessments for electrical injury. And that's what I want to do for rehabilitation is I want to have like a pamphlet for rehab counselors who have, who work with uh, clients that have a history of mental illness on their intake form. It needs to say, have you had ECT? Because it's an entirely different assessment process for brain injury than just mental illness. They're going to go in there with their primary diagnosis as a psych illness. Maybe it is, but their secondary diagnosis, if not their primary, depending on which one's more impactful, will be their brain injury. Right. And immediately after treatment, it would probably be the primary diagnosis and maybe five to 10 years after treatment, it would again, if it had shifted, it would begin, begin, begin to become the primary diagnosis. Yeah, it takes over your life. I mean, we should be being informed on all of these things. Yeah. So Um, with, with that being said, in your experiences, do you feel there is a disconnect? Do you feel that lack of resources within this community? Oh my gosh, there's such a lack of resources. I am literally being the resource finder for my entire community. Right. Every time I find a test that, or a blood test or a brain type of scan, either a VNG, which is a video nystagmography, or when we finally connected with the neurologist in Denver that recommended the 3T MRI with SWI. I mean, 
the standard neurologist evidently doesn't know how to even write an order for that, that they would think it would be important for someone with electrical injury. It, it's just, I share these with my counterparts and their family members that are in the Facebook group and they can't stop praising me as if I've done something magical. But it's because they're all so desperate for proper assessment and for proper help and support. There is nothing out there for them. There's a one, one article that was published in 2008 in Ireland that said that people with a history of ECT need to have rehabilitation for brain injury. And it's primarily focused on memory, but there's so much more to it. I mean, we're running into walls because we don't, our depth perception is off. Like I, even yesterday I burned myself or two days ago, I burned myself because I took something, I took something out of the oven, took my gloves off and forgot that it was hot and grabbed it. So it's just like, I mean, people they say, oh, it's just it's just memory loss. No, working memory is pretty profound. Like you use working memory for everything, and right. it's executive functioning. I mean, impaired executive functioning, executive like we're talking plan and prepare. That's the only way you can be independent, paying your right. bills, budgeting your funds. You know. Right showing up to class <laughs> yeah. being you know i have problems tracking time and i feel bad in my grad program because people would be like you know i would show up late to everything and it wasn't until my awesome at class wrote an entire grant proposal with research for me to get an ipad that could like set up like a calendar with alarms i mean my at class did that for me yeah yeah my friends don't have at friends they don't have graduate students interested in them there's two million people that don't and that's two million people every year so there's lots of people in 80 years of use that have this injury and i'm blessed because I'm getting the help that I need and I hope that I'm paving the way for other people to find these resources because there is such a disconnect. It yeah. shouldn't be on the brain injured patient to find their resources. Right. And to be, think... everyone's like, well, you have to be an advocate. Well, I'm sorry. Advocacy requires brain function and an executive functioning. And so if you can't constantly follow up on everyone, you know, right. it's impossible. It's hard. It's hard, especially when you're trying to adjust your own hard. life. It's like, how can I focus on others right now when yeah. I'm trying to get my life on track? Yeah, that's why I don't focus on others, but every time I get something, then I share it with them, and then they right. can use it. You so just like, share your wealth of knowledge, and yeah. advocating for yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're doing something to contribute. I'm trying to like write stuff up, but I've gotten to the point that like I can tweet because it's just like 20 characters or whatever. Right. But putting things in a cohesive like paragraph, it's like 
I'm forgetting how to do it. And so I have my mind map, you know, that I learned about in AT, but it's like, it's a, it's a very laborious process that shouldn't take as long as it does. So I'm not getting all the stuff written that I always thought I would. Yeah, I, I think what I've come to learn, you know, I haven't had much experience within the TBI community until I started interning at the Brain Injury Foundation. And yeah. right away, I just caught on how little we're taught about it, even in our program, yeah. that tends to people with disabilities, a variety of disabilities. Um, mm -hmm. That just people don't really realize, and I was included in that population, that just don't realize how affected um, or how a life can be impacted so greatly yeah. and for the rest of their lives. I mean, mm -hmm. you're talking about that can either rehospitalize an individual or just put them in a financial situation that they can't handle. Yeah. Um, you're talking about people, like you said, in socialized isolation. You're talking about losing an identity and being able to do the things that make you you. Yeah. I mean, and that, I mean, anytime anyone gets an acquired disability, they need to be walked through a grieving process. Right, and right, and there's, and that's what I'm trying to focus on with my paper. It's there's no transition period for in, individuals who suffer traumatic brain injury. I mean, no. basically getting them into the hospital, making sure they're you know well enough to go back into whatever their home care or. Yeah. I've been learning that some people go to nursing homes at young ages, and yeah. that to me is awful. Oh and yeah. To be treated after you know experiencing no. that and i mean you can develop other disabilities from that like seriously and anxiety and ptsd the um you know dependency on you know, alcohol or drugs and oh yeah it's just it's it's from what kurt was telling me you know there's more people a year that experience traumatic brain injuries than um heart attacks and cancer combined yeah and to me that was just shocking because to not have the funding there for such a common disability is oh yeah outrageous <laughs> outrageous i mean you think of the strokes the aneurysms the car accidents the you know ski accidents sporting accidents yeah whatever it may be i mean there's so many different ways to injure your brain and I think the problem is, is it's just a lot of people, I feel like with how fast-paced life is nowadays in America, it can just be a very one-sided mindset mm. where it's like, well, that won't happen to me, you know, that could never happen to me. And then when it does happen, it's like, what do I do now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do I do now? And I think also it's such a situation where because we are so distracted with so many things, we forget that there are people around us that are humans struggling to live with humanity. Uh, brain injury by its very nature uh, causes problems with personality, explosive uh, emotions, disability, or di in a, di 
difficulty regulating emotions and that right there puts you in a situation where soft skills can be very compromised. Oh yeah, your whole life has changed by just yeah. those two things. And so people, people in general have a hard time putting up with difficult people. Oh yeah. And so you put a population that becomes more difficult because of a brain injury and it's like it's difficult for them because funding isn't there likely because there aren't very many people who are in situations where they are still friendly after a brain injury yeah or able to advocate like you're oh yeah about. oh yeah so you know since i have moved to san diego i really realized how progressive of an area it is as far as I mean, it's got a lot of resources for a variety of disabilities. And oh, yeah. Um, so on your take, I wanted to see what you felt might be um, the resource you most benefited from. Sorry, <laughs> hyper right now. Yeah. Um, what resource do you feel like you maybe have benefited, you know, benefited from the most in San Diego? Um, in San Diego, I would probably definitely say the ABI program because it gave me social uh, outlet. It gave right. me, um, I mean, I, I was just getting such cavern fever in my house, not able to leave, um, not able to drive anymore, um, and it was getting the point I was about ready to crawl the walls. I was just like ready to scream. And so I was grateful when you and Kurt came in and did the interview, um, and I was grateful for the little paper that Kurt drew up and sent me that had resources in it. I was very grateful that he connected me with the peer support network because I think they have good intentions. Um, they probably need more help with coordinating with their volunteers. Um, but, you know, I've had someone visit me probably about twice a month since then. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, get me out of the house, get me communicating with people. Even now, one of their kids is like doing art projects with me once a week on oh. Zoom. It's <laughs> so cute. So cute. Classes, but... <laughs> Little 13-year-old is teaching me how to draw. <laughs> and she's so precious because I'm losing my hand coordination. So she's like, oh yeah, you're you're doing good. <laughs> hey, art is abstract, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it, it was really, really funny. Um, I think it's hard to find a good balance between uh, resources for brain injury, especially because brain injuries can evolve. Right. Um, people can, it's a very slow process, they can get better, like mm -hmm. aneurysm, I know my cousin had a brain aneurysm, and it took him about two years to kind of get back, like, kind of a semblance of normal, Right. he's not the same where he was before, but, you know, he is able to do a lot more than he was. 
Right. He feels he's probably gotten to, you know, he hasn't really improved much since the two years after the aneurysm. But he's not having a deterioration, you know, after the fact. So there are people who will have, you know, progression towards goodness and they will just keep getting better. Even though it's slow, they'll see it. Then there are other people who won't and who might even get worse, like me. I think one of the things that frustrates me the most is the evolving need of resources. Like previously, I didn't need transportation resources. I didn't need uh, AAC device. Um, now I'm starting to have to, uh, now I'm having periodic problems with extreme verbal apraxia where I just completely become nonverbal. And that would happen once in a while for like over the past 18 months, for the past six months, it's become probably three or four times a week. So people with brain injury, it's like kind of need a social worker assigned to you who can track you and like check in with you and see how you're doing. And honestly, I would kind of ideally put it in the context of like telecare, telecare for psychiatric patients. I was a telecare patient. I had someone assigned to me who was basically like a care coordinator who would check in and see if I was going to my doctor's appointment, see if I was taking my medicine, see if I needed anything resource-wise. And I really think that there needs to be a program kind of like telecare for people with brain injury because our needs do evolve. And there, and, and there's so many resources that suddenly become available that nobody knew about and, you know, they're hidden resources, little gems. Right. So well, I had, I had been reading a little bit about that and what could help individuals when leaving, you know, the transition period and not only that, but the funding mm -hmm. and um, the most common thing I was starting to see was we need to have case management. Um, yeah put implemented into the acute process and the acute care because yeah. how do you expect somebody to not only adjust to their new life but find all these resources and opportunities yeah. on their own there's no way no and then you're putting that responsibility on loved ones who also might take a lot more responsibility than just that i mean they're taking care of their their loved one exactly your life is changing as well Exactly. And it's hard because it's not like someone like me, I never went through acute care. So I would never be funneled into that. Um, so it's just like, it's, it's difficult because how do you capture the, the demographic appropriately? Right. How do you funnel them towards services? But having a case manager, um, once you get into it, honestly, if we could somehow create like a Lannerman Act like that did for developmental disabilities to create the regional center. Right. If we can do like something like that for acquired brain injury. It would be changing the world. <laughs> it would be life changing, yeah. yeah. Then you could like, even if they like the regional center, 
can have the developmental disabilities and then maybe we can like pass some legislation to have the acquired. There you go. <laughs> they can have different levels of care. Like like initially I needed someone checking in with me weekly, but then for probably about six years, I was doing great. So they could have backed off care, you know, for maybe quarterly even. But right. as I began having problems, then uh, now a weekly visit would be very welcome. Especially yeah. during something like this where I'm running out of soap, I'm running out of shampoo, and can't get to the store, you know? <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's some move that the community needs to be making. And I have mentioned how it can also be hard on the family as well. And I know that's something we talked about when we had originally met up yeah. about how your your parents were um, helping you out. And I think Kurt and I referred you guys to the Southern um, Caregiver Resource Center. Oh, um, I forgot. <laughs> oh, no. No, it's okay. I was just wondering if you guys had used that or how. Um, no, I totally forgot. That's actually wise. If I could get that information to get out, oh, yeah. out of them. I actually, I, I'm in a situation now where I do, my husband makes just over the limit for Medicare or Medi-Cal. So I cannot qualify for Medi-Cal, which is hard because I'm getting yeah. to the point that I need help around the house and I need help. Right in the during the day um you were there for one of my episodes and those have happened probably about two or three times a month with increasing frequency um <laughs> yeah so um i did i have a i do have a friend um who's uh also is a housekeeper and I started trying to pay her um, for four hours a week but yours truly with her brain injury cannot budget her money and so I also had a big Costco run and then my check balanced for my friend so it's like you know balance the toilet paper and paper towels with your housekeeping you know yeah it's, it's just it makes me sick to my stomach hearing stories like that, that yeah. put people in situations where it's like, okay, do I afford, you know, help around the house that I need or yeah. like toilet paper and soap? It's like nobody should have to choose between those two things. No, like my friend comes and she helps me like chop up vegetables and put them in the freezer or put them in the refrigerator so that I can cook around the house. Oh, but God my occupational therapist just commanded me never to cook again, especially after the burn. And this is not the first time this is happening, but I'm just like, am I just supposed to sit by myself here and just stare at the walls when I get hungry? I mean, seriously, right. you know? So it's just, it's frustrating. And yeah. I know that I am very blessed because I have a family who understands me or at least they're trying to. And I have a family who has 
financial means in, I mean, my family has subsidized this house. We're paying subsidized rent for this house. Right. So it's, I am in a situation most people do not have the benefit of being in. Yeah. Um, I recently actually learned that um, Illinois, I mean, there's, a, I think, 15 states that do something. It's called the Medicaid waiver. And it's the CBI waiver that um, provides some sort of funding for you to choose what you do with it, pretty much like a self, um, what's it called, self-dependency program or, you know, where you're oh, able to make sure. your own decisions. Wow. And, yeah, they give the funding to them and they can get home in-home care and you can, your family or friends qualifies for that. So then that way you can pay them. Oh, wow. But see, that's the problem is like, I was talking to Chuck, it's like not fair that somebody should have to just pick up their life and move <laughs> because they don't have the resources and where yeah. they're currently at. That's well, they not... wouldn't be able to move because they don't have the resources to move. Right, right. So it's, it's just, and I hear way too many stories about people having to move to San Diego for the ABI program and the Howard House. And it's like, yeah. yeah that's such a depending on where you're coming from that's such a big move because it's so expensive oh, yeah. out there and it's just, oh yeah it's we're not, not moving easy. to texas or arizona we're moving right. to San Diego. right that's you're talking about one of the most expensive cities in america it's, yeah. it's yeah. a very hard thing to grasp i guess as a professional i guess i'm trying to like keep it cool but sometimes it just feels frustrating yeah, I think what we need to do is make inroads with people who can make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I know I was thinking about, you know, um, we need to create like a foundation of some sort that partners with the universities in different disciplines to have like foundational doctoral programs and whatnot to coordinate like public health. I mean, I, I see something that would coordinate with public health, that will public coordinate with the neuro uh, sciences, like neurology, psychiatry, um, social work, and like have like an interdisciplinary team funded, you know, researchers or whatever funded uh, rehab counseling, obviously funded by this foundation so that we can get more information out there. Right. Yeah, actually, Chuck was telling me Illinois has one of, like, a big foundation out here for traumatic brain injuries, and yeah. um, they actually might do, he said, the case management program. So I'm actually looking at maybe finding an occupation in that when I come back, but it's just, um, it's, I mean, like I said, it's so rare to find foundations like that. It's just where I mean, is that? Um, in Illinois. Oh, in I, Illinois. I would. I don't know oh, where. No, probably. Yeah, that's what I figured. Probably near the city. I know they have a few different um locations mm -hmm. that provides the case management, but yeah. I I need to look into exactly where. I know they have a really good rehabilitation program there for for electrical injury, actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah that there's resources out here. Yeah. We'll have to look into that further, maybe. If you have any information on that, maybe you Is could... that where you are now? 
I'm in Illinois right now. Oh, yeah. this is a real <laughs> Yeah, I came back home. I was getting tired of quarantining by myself out yeah. there. <laughs> well, let me send you the information for that because, um, let's see. That's not going to work there. Let's see. Yeah, it's them. Let's see. Um, it's out of Chicago. It's a lightning strike and uh, electrical injury. Electric Shock Survivor International. Um, let's see, they have yearly meetings. It says that they are out of North Carolina, but they actually have um, a lot of the professors are out of Chicago. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, let's see. They have some good uh, medical schools out there, so it wouldn't be surprising. Yeah. Um, Chicago Electrical Trauma Rehabilitation Institute. How's that for a mouthful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you have that information, if you Let me you just send this to you. Yeah. I could find where I am here. Let's see, where's my chat? There we go. There's that. Perfect. Um, but, yeah. So, um, just to conclude, I wanted to get maybe your last thoughts about maybe what you want people to know about resources and your last thoughts on that. I think one of the hardest thing about resources is a lot of them require funding from insurance companies. So if you're working with doctors who don't understand your injury, it's difficult for them to document appropriately to get that funding from insurance companies. Yeah. I mean, just I just had a brain or a sleep study done by a doctor who doesn't understand brain injury. He understands sleep. We understand sleep apnea. My blood oxygen saturation level got down to 84% and my heart rate got down to 49. Oh my or, no, my heart rate was 48. My blood saturation level was 84. There you go. Um, and it would, my heart rate would cycle from uh, 48 to 123 while I was sleeping and my oxygen saturation level would go from 84 in the low 80s all the way up to 100 and then back. And so I needed, I need to have an inpatient sleep study where they connect my brain up and, you know, look at my brain waves while I sleep, especially knowing that I have this chronic bleed in my brainstem, which controls your breathing. Um, and the insurance company's refusing it. And my doctor's like, oh well. <laughs> and so it's like, I have to keep searching out doctors that are willing to put in the legwork. And unfortunately, right. doctors are so overworked to begin with. Yeah. Like, 
you need to have, like part of your case management would be facilitating the insurance process right. getting the documentation done finding a list of doctors who are willing to put in the legwork but then you don't want to burn them out so you don't want to refer everyone to them right so it's just like i don't know um what was the question again oh just your last thoughts about oh. um, you know your traumatic brain injury or just in general yeah i think it, it it's extremely difficult to expect the person living with the brain injury to be their own advocate yeah. um I can't tell you, I've been trying to get services for myself for 10 years. Right. And it's only been in the last six months that I've actually made some headway. And that's because I was my entire, my advocate the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was persistent, even if I wasn't consistent in being persistent, I was persistent. A lot of people will live with lived helplessness because they try, 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 nothing works, so they just give up. Yeah. It it takes a unique brain <laughs> to not give up, a unique courage and spirit of a person to not give up. And I think if we could somehow channel, I think one of the most important things we can do for people living with brain injury is to help them break through learned helplessness using the principles of authentic happiness that Seligman developed. Because once you feel empowered and recognize that you can make changes, then it really doesn't matter how slow those changes come, you will keep trying to make changes. Right. And it's so critical for people to be able to feel empowered in their own treatment decisions in their own life so that they don't give up because that's why you see these people who suicide these football players or you know people who've survived gnarly car accidents or people who've survived dct you see them suicide after prolonged trying, 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 nothing's working, no one's helping me, I'm out. I'm on my own, yeah. I'm on my own for too long. So it's not that they, it's not like they're weak. We never ask people if their glass, we always ask people if their glass is half full or if their glass is half empty, but we never ask them how long they've been carrying that glass. Right. If you can't, yeah, if you carry it around, a, you know, a party, you can put it down on a table or whatever, but you're still carrying it, right? If you carry it for an entire day without the ability to put it down, you carry it for a week, you carry it for a year. And so slowly you feel like your life vest is starting to fill with cement. Right. And and then you have the voices in your head saying, you're a burden on your family, you're a burden on your community, you're a burden, you're a burden, you're a burden. So we need to help people take themselves out of that mindset. I mean, I was fortunate because I already got through the psychiatric part. <laughs> and so I learned a lot of skills along the way. Right. But I have to keep kind of helping my peers learn these skills because they keep trying 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 you know for two or three years and then they're just like i 
I've tread water with a slowly filling, uh, you know, uh, live vest full of cement. And it's not that they lost their fight. I give them credit for graduating with honors because it's like, dude, I know how hard you tried for as long as you did. Yeah. So I don't know. I have a completely different perspective, I guess. But I think if we, if, if I could do one thing for the brain injury community, it would be to help foster resiliency by helping people recognize the power they have within themselves. Yeah. And also to help um, with the case management and the resources funding and research. Those are my four. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that you're um, still, you know, involved in the community and trying to help in any way you can. Uh, I've seen you from the very first time I met you to yeah. now, and it's, I mean, I've even been able to witness that um, impact that the resources in San Diego have had in your life and yeah I mean, I mean it's cool when you can see it in person and yeah so, like yeah. you guys got me connected with uh I think the ABI program we had hooked you up with yeah ABI program and you also helped me locate the information for MTS so that I could just print it and take it to my doctor um program I think we connect yeah I definitely Kirk connected me with them and so it's like I went from being completely isolated at home by myself to being able to get out and about and right. so I mean, just being able to get out is the empowerment that somebody might need just to start them off oh yeah and and having like the reduced fare so that I could get on the trolley and get lost in San Diego with a friend you know it's, it's more, you know, being able to get out of these four walls is really important. Even now during COVID, I pretend I'm walking my imaginary dog, you know, I know you're not supposed to go out, but I go out in my chair around and do like yeah. loops around the block. Yeah. Just what looking your... joy. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a little bit. Yeah, and I wouldn't have really had the courage to do that, I don't think, right. if, if I hadn't had access to other resources that were like, yeah, Sarah, this is what you need to do. You know, I knew I needed to do it, but I needed like a little kick in the pants. <laughs> <laughs> you got that self-efficacy that you really needed. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Sarah. And, you bet. Um, if you would like, I'm, I can send you my finished project when it's all done. I would totally I'm, like that. I'm a little nervous, but <laughs> no. I'm excited to be studying this pro or this topic a little bit, you know, more in depth. Yeah, so, I'm really you excited for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, if, what are you going to do with yourself when you finish with school? So my plan is I'm supposed to graduate in May or in December, and um, yeah, it's very soon. <laughs> I'm hoping we are able to get back onto campus before yeah. then. <laughs> right. I'm hearing that they're thinking about you know just finishing the year up um, all online. So there no decisions have been made as far as that goes, but I really hope not because I I do miss going and seeing you know professors and my cohort. Uh -huh. 
Oh, yeah. And the ABI program, I was really, you know, loving being part of, and I only got to do that for a little bit. So yeah, <laughs> it just stinks. But yeah, afterwards, I'm hoping, well, my plan is to move back to Illinois and try and find a, something out here within the brain injury community. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. My, my brother lives in Naperville. Oh, really? Very yeah. beautiful area. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yes, it's it's very nice, and it's a little further outside of the city, so you don't have to worry about all the traffic and stuff. Yeah. So that's nice. I got some nice malls, too. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's really cool. I You know, I'm going to put a little, if you, if you need anyone to, like, help you with a letter of recommendation for your brain injury advocacy I can write it both as a professional and as a person survivor thank you so much yeah that would be I would be so grateful for that Um, maybe we can keep in contact for that and then I know I'm I've been reaching out to a few people about I'm still doing the ed tech stuff for ABI so I'll be in contact with you for that as well oh are you going to any of the zoom classes yeah I didn't even know they had them. Yeah, actually, I think you're on my list to contact because I think your um, email kept debunking. It kept coming back saying it was the wrong email. Oh. Yeah, so if you want to... Because I never get their emails. (laughs) Yeah, it might just be that it's wrong in there. Maybe we have a wrong letter or something. So the... Here's my personal email. Oh, perfect. Let's see. 